Hi, my name is Gracie Castaneda, and this is my intergenerational family historical podcast. Um, I'm naming it the Islands of Loneliness. So before starting this assignment, I was a little nervous. I knew that I didn't know how much about my family and our historical family roots. I've never really taken the time to dive deep into my, even my parents' histories, let alone my ancestors. Plus, it is pretty hard to get information from my dad's side of the family since I don't see them often or keep in contact with them much. And for my mom's side, well, it turned out my great-great-aunt had written a series of books on our family's history, which I had no idea about, and her name is Marjorie. I'll be referring back to her a lot throughout this podcast. So I was pretty excited to learn and begin this podcast after I found that found out that we had all those books. It has been so interesting to connect my family history to the readings and lessons I have learned throughout this class. It's interesting to have to wrestle with my family's racial and economic privileges based on what has happened in the past and how history has affected my family. What I also found interesting is that my mom's side of the family has had many struggles. They were very poor and grew up in very isolated areas, but they were also white, whereas my dad's side of the family were all Mexican and their struggles looked much, much different than my mom's side of the family's struggles. Before starting this project, I will admit I didn't really see myself as having a deep family history, or in other words, I never really thought of my family's history to be interesting at all. I just thought of myself and my family as very basic. In other words, honestly, I didn't really think I had culture, which I know sounds terrible now that I've learned, now that I've learned all that I've learned in this class and in many other classes. Um, this brings me back to one of the first class meetings we had. I asked myself, why Why did I think like this? And after one of the first class meetings we had, we talked about the dominant culture and how with a dominant culture carries power. Um, and one concept I remember we talked about was a fish in the water concept. And the fish doesn't realize the water that it's swimming in because it's what it's been used to its entire life. So I related that back to myself. And I realized that maybe I didn't realize the culture I have and the culture I'm in because it's what I've been used to my entire life. It's the dominant culture and whatever is different from my culture just seems deviant and then as and as not normal because um, it's not the dominant culture. And there's one um, quote from Affirming Diversity, the Affir- Affirming Diversity book that stuck out to me. And it was on page 40 in the second paragraph. And it, say- it says, everyone participates in culture, but many times members of the culturally dominant group of society do, do not even think of themselves as cultural beings. And I realized that so many people probably make this mistake and I was included in one of those people. And that's why, that's why multicultural education is becoming to to become what it is um and learning about each other's histories and our own histories is so critical in understanding each other and how the world works it's also so important to realize that some people benefit so much from the way the world is set up and so much from history while at the same time simultaneously people are at a drastic disadvantage because of history And I'm going to start with diving in to unpacking my own family history and connecting it to education and the world history. World's history.
Well, to begin, I guess I will start close and create a brief image of myself and what my, my upbringing consisted of. My dad is full Mexican and my mom is full white. My mom was about 19 when she got pregnant with me and my parents never got married and only lived together for about honestly less than a year. I lived mostly with my mom who lived with my grandma and her younger sister. This was probably because my mom was 19 and she didn't go to college, she didn't have a steady job, so there was no way she could have provided for the both of us. My grandma and my aunts watched over me a lot while my mom left for work. On to the next chapter of our lives, my mom got married. He was a monster. Um, I suffered various kinds of abuse from him and had to learn how to deal with the trauma I experienced over the course of their marriage by myself. It sucked. It was a very dark, lonely, and scary time in my life. They married when I was four and divorced when I was about 11. Within that time of their marriage, we moved around a lot, mostly throughout my elementary school years. I ended up going to four or five different elementary schools before the third grade. At that age though, school was honestly the least of my problems. There isn't one teacher I can really think of before high school that sticks out to me. There's not a teacher I can remember that really, really honestly cared about my well-being and asked me how I was. The only concern my teachers had for me and my classmates was how well we did in the class, behaviorally and academically. Eventually, my mom and her husband got a divorce, but this led to my mom bringing more toxic men into our household. This ongoing cycle of toxicity coming and going from my life by the work of my mother fostered an environment in my house of fear and darkness. I didn't feel as if I could trust my mom or even begin to build a relationship with her. I did a lot of growing up on my own. I felt so isolated and lonely throughout the majority of my childhood. As for my dad, I would visit him on the weekends where I was a bystander to the abuse he would inflict on my older siblings. I never seemed to escape the violence. He left for Mexico during the time of my mother's marriage, leaving me alone with my mom. He rarely talked to me and was gone for around three to four years. Growing up in these kinds of environments and seeing the way people interacted with one another put me in a place where I couldn't be myself. It was hard for me to ever feel at ease and have fun or be happy. I felt constant stress and fear, but above all, loneliness. Looking at my mom's side of the family, this pattern of violence and loneliness isn't anything new. Isolation is a reoccurring manifestation within our bloodlines, both emotionally and physically. Remember those books I mentioned in the beginning of my podcast that my great-great-aunt Margie wrote? Well, one of the quotes from that book was, Every woman in my family was an islander. Islands were their homes in the isolation and loneliness that permeated their surroundings also epitomized years of their lives. And that is from my great-aunt Margie. My ancestors came from islands and secluded areas near the shores of Norway and Scotland. To go back as far as I could, I will begin with my great-great-great-grandfather, Charles Edward Hammerquist. He was born in Skudenshaven, which I'm probably butchering. I don't know how to pronounce that properly, but I will try my best. This was an island right off the shores of Karmoy on the west coast of Norway. Skudenshaven is a small village built around a natural harbor on the island of Karmoy. The beaches were exposed to the winds and weather of the Atlantic. The trees were small and bent and vegetation is scarce. The east side of the island was very sheltered, but this is not where Charles Edward Hammerquist ended up. The water supported the town financially. The lobster trade brought the English and Dutch boats into the safe harbor in the 1700s, and the herring trade brought as many as 6,000 fishermen to the shores. 
The greatest fishing period was between 1844 and 1856 and lasted until about 1869 when the herring moved north and the fishing industry ended in the waters of Schoonenshaven. The town had tall warehouses surrounding the, surrounded, surrounding the town's harbors for workers and sailors who would carry off the barrels of packed herring to Baltic ports. Small one-story houses with white picket fences that enclosed tiny gardens were packed along the streets away from the shore. Villages clustered under and up against steep, darky, dark rocky banks and hugged the fingers of the seashore. The streets were very narrow and twisty. But now, according to my Google search on the town, it is much more clean and vibrant. But back then, it was very poor, very dark, lonely, and empty. The land supplied very little in this town. In order to get to the closest, bigger city, you would have to cross the water to Stavanger. And Stavanger is where Anna Morkman came from. Now, this is where things get a little tricky for me because Annie and Anna are family names, and they've been in my family throughout generations. There's what I read through the book, there was at least five Annies, and it was really hard for me to keep track of, but I will do my best. So Anna Morkman came from Stavanger, and she was the mother of Anna Dorothea Christensen. And Anna Dorothea is Marjorie's great-grandmother, making Marjorie's grandma, also Anna Dorothea, and Marjorie's mother's name was Annie Dorothea Christensen Hammerquist Monroe Noble because she married so many times. So as you can see, that is why I'm getting so confused. <laughs> but anyways, so Anna Morkman was from Stavanger, and Stavanger was also very poor, just like Schoonenshaven. Um, it takes over an hour for ferries to reach Stavanger from um. Scudenshaven. On the arrival, ferries must wind through a narrow passageway between giant rocks to get to the ferry quay. And ferries actually didn't reach the town until after 1960 because it was just impossible to get there. Prior to that year, there were small passenger boats who provided escape to the mainland and to America for work and opportunity. But Anna Morkman never escaped. She was left on the island as hungry and alone as the seagulls when the herring fled north. Um, but her children, along with her husband, left to find more opportunities. Throughout the years, the children ended up in different places. A lot in America, but a lot stayed in the area, and some went to Scotland. Marjorie's mother's name was Annie Dorothea Christensen Hammerquist Monroe Noble. But at this time I'm talking about right now, she was just Annie Dorothea Christian Hammerquist. She arrived on Vashon Island when she was about five years old. Before that, she was living in a small neighborhood in the town of Lennox Town on the outskirts of Glasgow, Scotland. While they lived in Scotland, the family lived on the top floor of a two-story tenement. Their living quarters consisted of a large kitchen and one bedroom. The parents had two girls, Annie and Margaret, they slept on the floor, and the five boys, Alex, Fred, Charles, Arthur, and Donald had the bedroom. Annie was a child here, and Annie is Marjorie's mother. So Annie, Annie's parents, Charlie was her dad, left in May 1908 with his oldest son, Alex, who was age 12 for the Promised Land of Refuge, which was America, and more specifically for them, Fashion Island in the Puget Sound area. Before Charlie could bring his family to America, the mother barely survived with the kids. 
They had little to eat and would have to travel three and a half miles by train every Sunday to go to Annie's sister's home, which is where they are fed the biggest meal of the week. About five years after Charlie left with Alex, which was in the spring of 1912, the rest of the family followed. The living conditions in Vashon Island weren't much better. Times were hard, food and money were scarce. The local church actually helped by bringing them blankets, hand-me-down clothing, and food. The children didn't realize how dejected, degraded, and disappointed their mother was with this move to the dismal little house sitting on barren flat land, a move that carried with it no advantages. The entire move from Scotland had taken away taken them away from their family, their heritage, and had even failed to raise them out of the environment of poverty as she had expected. But for school, Charlie and Anna's kids were mocked in, in school for their Scottish accents by the Norwegian children. In 1921, Anna died, and it was very unexpected. She had pneumonia. Charlie was devastated and the family split up. Annie went to live with a friend in Bremerton. Um, but prior to the death, while the kids were still in school, despite their Scottish accents and being treated as foreigners by the Norwegian communities, the Hammerquist children stood at the head of their classes in school. Evenings were spent reading poetry and good literature. Annie taught them appreciation for music before her death. And Annie, her daughter, which is Marjorie's mother, met Mel, her first husband in Fremont. They escaped together and married, but the circumstances were not good for the building of a healthy marital relationship in the time. The culture of the 1920s did little to encourage stability or did little to promote the joys of parenting or marriage. The search for partying and a good time was the atmosphere of the era. Annie and Mel eventually got split up. Annie remarried to Half Noble. She moved around a lot and left her kids to go live with Hap and his friends. As you can tell, she was a little irresponsible. She eventually left him because of how unhappy she was. She thought he would provide her with um, food and money and help provide for her and her children, but that wasn't the case. And Margie was actually a lot unhappy, a lot more unhappy than she thought she would be. Margie had a best friend, Marcia. They were troublemakers. <laughs> they drank and smoked a lot and slept around and flirted with everyone from border patrol to policemen. Annie eventually changed her name to Dorothy because she hated the name Annie so much. So now that helps. I can refer to Annie as Dorothy and Dorothy was Marjorie, my great aunt, great, great aunt Marjorie's mother. So Dorothy eventually left Hap Noble and married Ralph. This is where she gets all of her last names from. Ralph didn't drink or smoke, and he had a steady job and ended up marrying Dorothy. Um, but the bombing of Pearl Harbor actually changed a lot for her family. Ralph couldn't get into the Army because of his hearing loss, so he worked on the Alaskan Highway, um, and money was actually really good for him. They moved into a houseboat, but because of gas rationing, the car was sold and the family depended on public transportation. Now, I did talk to Margie a little bit over the phone, and she explained to me what her relationship was like with her mother. Her relationship with her mother was okay. She was fun, social, smart, and an extrovert, and she managed to survive through years of abandonment by death, divorce, and circumstances. If there was a way that she could survive, she figured out how to do it, even if it meant sometimes it was, was to be less than honorable. She had the brains and the courage to manage to bring herself up into the world by her own bootstraps. 
When the opportunity presented itself, she studied, managed money, and was aware always of the circumstances of her environment. Realism, humor, generosity, and duty exemplifies her personality and character. The duty often forced upon her, but always accepted, was the task of caring for her family, whether they were her brothers, her father, her son, or me and mine. But in her old age, and this is the words, these are the words of Margie, Margie. She said to me, as I look back on my life, I do not see too much happiness, some, but not much. That statement revealed the unknown depth of her being, which I really never knew. Her problems were her own, not mine. And in that way, I was protected from more than I could have ever handled as a child. It was her gift of determination and enthusiasm that carried us through the hard times. She was like a comet with all the flash and the fire for a strong will to be herself and not be confined by social restrictions or expectations of what her self-directed course should be. And even if she didn't mother me, she loved me. This quote and these words by Margie stuck out to me so much. And it's because her relationship with Dorothy reminds me so much of my relationship with my mother. The last line in her quote said, and even if she didn't mother me, she loved me. And ever since I heard her say that and read that on the paper, I couldn't get over how much it reminded me of my relationship with my mom. My mom works her tail off trying to support me and my brother. And I know she would do anything for us. But at the same time, our emotional bond is very shallow. It's very surfacey and I've never had taken I've never taken the time and she's never taken the time to emotionally bond with me and connect with me and throughout reading this book and learning a lot about the relationships between mothers and daughters and even the relationships between other family members in the household household it has really struck me how isolated everyone in my family has been and it continues to be through this generation right now but I will begin to connect more of Margie's book and my family's history to myself and to education and history once I'm done with my dad's side of the family, which honestly I didn't have that much on because it's pretty hard to get to know about that side of the family since I'm not in contact with many of them or many of my family members on that side. I talk to my dad over the phone every now and then and see him about once a year and that's it. On his side of the family, I have about, I have three sisters and one older brother, all of which have kids that I've never met. Um, my dad has eight siblings total, all with kids who also have kids, who probably also have kids. I have an immense number of cousins and I don't even know half of their names. Um, I've never met my grandpa on his side and I have very, very small brief memories of my great grandma on his side and even his mother, which is my grandma. Um, growing up, in my, I would go visit my dad on the weekends. He lived in a house with my grandma and her husband and his brother, who was my Uncle Pete and his husband, and also two of my aunts, another one, my Uncle Fabian, and then three of my siblings. And the house was very small and very poor, and it was not an environment to um, have even one person living in that house. It was so unhealthy and so just not good for anyone to be living there. Um, but to go back to my family history on my dad's side, I will begin with my dad's parents' names. 
They were Pedro Castaneda and Angela Garcia Castaneda. Angela was born in San Antonio, Texas, and she worked at Western Publishing throughout her life. Her husband, Pedro, was also born in San Antonio, Texas, and worked at J.I.K.'s company, like also like his father, Toribio Castaneda. Toribio was born and raised in a city called San Luis Potosi in Mexico. Both of Toribio's parents were born and raised in Mexico. As for Angela, my grandma, her parents' names were Garcia West Brownsenbelt. Garcia was born in Chihuahua, Mexico, and worked in San Antonio, Texas. Angela's mother's name was Irene Escobel, and was born in Eden, Texas, and worked in San Antonio, Texas. Both of Garcia's parents were born and raised in southern Mexico, and my great-great-grandmother was Mayan. Because I couldn't get in contact with anyone else from my dad's side, I had to get most of my facts and information from him. I asked my dad a lot about what his upbringing was like and what his parents were like, and his school. He told me that his family couldn't advance, that they couldn't take advantage of their rights, and couldn't grasp opportunities like a lot of other white people could. They were constantly stereotyped against, and he explained that it was a real, real white world. My dad went to public school, and he said there was a lot of prejudice going on. He always felt like he was being left behind, always last in line, metaphorically and actually left in line. There was only one person in his entire family that graduated high school. Neither of his parents were educated, and his dad didn't even know how to spell his name, and neither did his mother for that instance. My dad explained that elementary school for him was a bad word. He said he couldn't defend himself because he didn't have the voice to stick up for himself, and if he tried, he would just get walked all over by his teachers and by his classmates that were white. In high school, he said he was able to stick up for himself more and fight back. While he would defend himself, he would also get expelled. And then, he never graduated. What was implanted into my dad's mind and to the minds of his siblings and friends was that in order to succeed or even be a good human, you had to become more white in order to be accepted by society and be treated as equally as everyone else. But obviously, he couldn't do that. This is called deculturalization or cultural deprivation. From reading more of Affirming Diversity, I realized that my dad said the family was considered a dominated and disenfranchised group within society. They were overpowered and overruled by white folks, and I can't speak for him and his family or the people before him, but I can relay the information of what he said to me. He said that they always fell at a disadvantage, that because they weren't white, they were always put behind those who were. They struggled with the simplest of things. They struggled to find housing and jobs. He couldn't even stay in school because of the color of his skin. Him and his family were continually, and still are, being oppressed in this, in his words, real, real white world.
And this is where multicultural education to students can counteract that. How we can start moving away from Western pedagogy. How we can move to a broader educational lens and consider the differences and experiences of our students and what they are bringing to the classroom. Our main priority should be to understand how educators and schools view students' cultures and how, they, how their perceptions may influence students' learning and achievement. There's one paragraph that stuck out to me from Affirming Diversity in Part 2, Chapter 5 on page 140. It's while culture is integral to the learning process, it may affect individuals differently. In other words, culture is not destiny. Given differences in social class and family structure, individual psychological and emotional differences, inexperiences, birth order, residence, and a host of other individuals and social distinctions, it is fully to think that culture alone accounts for all human differences. Anyone who has children can confirm this truth. Two offspring from the same parents with the same culture and social class and raised in substantially the same way can turn out to be as different as night and day. Hence, culture is neither static nor deterministic. It gives us just one way in which to understand differences among students. The assumption that culture is a primary determin determinant of academic achievement can be oversimplistic, dangerous, and counterproductive because although culture may influence, it does not determine who we are. That whole paragraph is from the book. But this is where I want to bring the light to light, intersectionality and hybridity. As you can see from my podcast, I am not one thing or two things or three things. I am a multitude of things. I am so many different identities that intersect that you can't pinpoint me or put me in one box. And that goes for every single other human on this entire earth. I'm not more my mom's history than my dad's history. And that's what makes everyone so unique. Being a future teacher, it's important for me to realize the multitude of identities that I will encounter throughout my years. It's important to know that it's impossible to know what to do in every situation for every student to make them successful every minute of the day. But what I can do is to create an environment that embraces embraces culture and embraces identity and fosters an environment where we want to learn together and as one and about each other and that's all I can do as a future teacher is to embrace culture embrace identity embrace differences and to teach my students about histories of our nation our world and about each other